0: Welcome to a special edition of the Reorg Europe podcast on aviation insolvency in the UK. My name is Richard Woolley, distressed debt and restructuring editor in Reorg's London office, and today I'm joined by Chris Parker, London Head of Restructuring at DLA Piper, and aviation partner Tony Payne. Following the collapse of Monarch Airlines in October 2017, the then-Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, used the autumn budget to announce the establishment of a review into, the air, into airline insolvency in the UK. The terms of reference for the review essentially contemplated three questions, and I quote, how to repatriate passengers in the immediate aftermath of an insolvency, how to finance a system of passenger protection, and what reforms were necessary to the existing framework. The final report, which ran to over 100 pages, included among... A host of other recommendations calls for improvements to current legislative and regulatory arrangements for UK airlines, which were aimed at ensuring an insolvent airline could continue flight operations for a short period after entering administration, enhancements to the Civil Aviation Authority's ability to monitor and enforce airline license compliance in relation to financial health, and enhancements to solvent airlines' provision of rescue fees These recommendations went on to become the basis for the new airline insolvency legislation, uh, which was included in the Queen's speech at the opening of Parliament in December last year, embedding them in the new government's legislative agenda. Today, we're going to be discussing these developments and looking at their implications for investors. But to set the scene, I want to ask uh, Chris and Tony, first of all, to talk about the current system. In short, what happens when a UK airline becomes insolvent?
1: Okay, I think, Richard, you can divide that between the, the, the legal position, the operational position and the, 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 the regulatory position, and I, I shall let Tony go to the, the, the regulatory point. Um, however legally, as things stand, there is no different insolvency process for um, airlines than there is for you know, any, any other um, business, you know, manufacturing, whatever. Um, and therefore, an administrator or a liquidator would be appointed. The administrator or liquidator will then take a view on how they want to um, to proceed with that business. Um, so there is no um, automatic requirement for them to, to to stop trading, to 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 stop flying, um, or anything like that. Um, turning to sort of the the, the operational issues, um, you know, the, the, that. Um, tends to be um, the, the the major concern for an administrator or liquidator will be well how how am I going to fund um, the, um, the the business to to, to to continue in the short term what is the risk the personal liability of continuing the um, the business um, in the short term so th- th- those tend to be the reasons why um, airlines don't continue trading um, Apart from that, uh, as things stand, creditors all rank within the usual insolvency waterfall. Um, I think we'll turn to in you know, the potential special administration regime later. Um, but as, as things stand, there's
2: really no difference. Mm. Thanks, Chris. And from a regulatory perspective, I think the uh, the idiosyncrasy with aviation is that uh, the operators, being the airlines, have uh, an operating licence that is issued by the, uh, the local authority in the UK, being the Civil Aviation Authority. Uh, at any point in time, the Civil Aviation Authority has the ability to withdraw an airline's operating licence, and one of the key tests for that is the uh, financial sustainability of that airline. Uh, in the event that the CAA is not convinced of the airline's financial sustainability, uh, it can uh, suspend or withdraw uh, that operating licence. And of course, that has been a, a key consideration through all of the recent insolvencies that we've seen. But I think from a more practical perspective, it is that lead in, uh, the lead in issues into the insolvency that are often the catalyst to the end result. And by that, we mean that. You will often see a series of events with any airline distress uh, where there will be creditors starting to try and mitigate their exposure those sorts of creditors being uh, the fuel suppliers the credit card providers and so on and certainly in the recent uh distressed airline situations that was indeed the catalyst uh, at points to the failure uh, of those airlines yeah and i suppose that's what
1: we don't see is what. The, the, uh, the, um, the important piece is what's happening immediately before the insolvency. So, you know, there'll be enormous amounts of contingency planning mm. going on um, by regulators, by the airline itself, and, um, and by their advisors, as well as creditors beginning to, to up the pressure mm. um, on that airline and look at their potential remedies before or in the event that it fails. Mm.
0: Okay. And just turn, turning to the, the kind of regulatory uh, situation. In in the UK we're obviously signatories to the the Cape Town Convention which has its own um, insolvency measures. Um, How does that interplay with the Insolvency Act in the UK and um, is there anything notable about the relationship between the two?
1: So so the Cape Town Convention effectively amends and enhances the existing moratorium um, in in insolvency. So it benefits the airline for the first 60 days and then benefits the the lessor or the, the financier after the expiry of those 60 days. So, uh, the the Cape Town Convention um, alters the restrictions on certain creditors on their enforcement of aircraft security and leases. Instead of being bound by the regular moratorium, alternative A of the Cape Town Convention means an airline must return leased or mortgaged airframes to relevant creditors within a 60-day waiting period or cure all defaults, preserve and maintain value of the airframes and undertake to perform all obligations after that 60-day waiting period, then uh, lessors are entitled to, to repossess airframes. Um, and that means that l- longer-term trading than the initial 60-day period are impossible.
2: And I think the only thing I would add to that is uh, certainly those that have been involved in any of the, uh, the recent challenges with airlines, uh, and of course we've been involved in almost all of them, will have seen that the Cape Town Convention has actually not featured significantly, and that is because of domestic regulatory regimes that effectively usurp the Cape Town Convention. And, and where we've seen that crystallise is at the point of, uh, of entering into the administration or the insolvency, we are seeing the grounding and detention of fleets of aircraft uh, in, at a point at which the lessors simply cannot enforce their rights uh, under the Cape Town Convention. A- and that arises by virtue of domestic legislation that allows uh, the, a UK airport, the C- Civil Aviation Authority or Eurocontrol to detain an entire fleet uh, of an aircraft uh, to protect it for certain uh, debts accrued to uh, Eurocontrol, to the airport, to air traffic control. Uh, and certainly that has been something that has been uh, highly significant in all of the recent collapses, including in respect to the repatriation of passengers uh, at the moment.
0: Okay, well that brings us fairly neatly onto the monarch uh, situation. Mm. Um, how, how did that play out kind of legally and, and for creditors? So I
2: guess, well, I'll let Chris talk to it legally from an insolvency perspective. But I think in terms of the timing, uh, the difference between that and the more latter uh, distress situations was that in Monarch, it it was it was unprecedented. It, we had a situation where you have a legal regime whereby. Uh, travel companies, uh, uh, the the operators pay into an atoll fund that allows for the repatriation of passengers and so on. Uh, this obviously deals with the uh, aviation regulatory side of things and not the insolvency things which which may not be as relevant to your listeners. but the relevance of that is that what we saw in Monarch was a situation where treasury, uh, and, and indeed the creditors of Monarch were put under immense pressure because of the shortfall created by virtue of the uh, very significant costs of re- repatriating a vast number of uh, British holidaymakers. Uh, and I think that bore out the, um, the perceived shortfalls in the um, certainly the package travel regime but also the insolvency regime uh, that Chris uh, might want to comment on.
1: Yeah, so I think the, um, the,
2: the, the interesting feature
1: about Monarch um, was, um, for the reasons that we, we've talked about, both operational reasons and um, regulatory reasons, um, the administrators, in the case of Monarch, were unable to continue flying. Um, as a result of that, there were 100,000 passengers left stranded in other jurisdictions and 30,000 odd bookings lost. Um, so, because they would taken the, the, the decision not to fly um, immediately, um, aircraft leases were terminated, um, and so I think the, the, a lot of time was spent over the first seven days dealing with the um, the impact of the termination of those leases, um, and there and as a consequence of that, the uh, the repatriation exercise had to rely on um, on on non-monarch. Aircraft, hmm. um, in order to to, to re- repatriate a hundred thousand odd people, hmm. and I think the cost we now know is something around sixty million um, pounds, and, and that's what I know we're going to talk about the airline insolvency review later, um, but that'll be one of the um, the major issues, um, which um, which caused the the government to um, to request the the airline insolvency review.
0: Hmm. Yeah, we could maybe we can talk a little bit more about how how monarch kind of led to the the A I R. Um, what what were the steps between monarch and and the call for for reform?
2: From a I think from a practical perspective, it, it's it's really quite simple. Uh, there was a regulatory regime that was designed to protect. Uh, certain passages uh, fra- in, in the case of a failure of an operator or a package trail provider. But what we saw was that the reality of the situation was that when Monarch collapsed, the pressure on governments created from the public and the media was that uh, the public expected all uh, holidaymakers, all British holidaymakers, to be repatriated Quite simply, that created a huge financial burden that could not be met by the existing uh, regime that was in place by the CAA and, and which was then met uh, directly by HMG. Uh, the net result of that is that you have a, a, a burden on the UK taxpayer uh, to, uh, to, to meet those costs. That, for obvious reasons, is not a situation that Treasury... Uh, wants to see itself put in, and as a consequence of that, it forced itself to look back at what is the regime, uh, what are other countries, what are other jurisdictions doing about these sorts of things, and and how might we address these uh, eventualities in the in the future?
0: Okay, um, and aside from the repatriation point or the passenger protection, what are the most important kind of aspects of the uh, review? Do you think what, 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 what are perhaps maybe the unforeseen uh, effects of some of these uh, recommendations?
2: I think the 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 one of the objectives, of course, is to provide everyone with certainty throughout the process. So, uh, what we saw in all of the uh, distressed airline situations was uh, the 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 need for government and for the regulator and, and for the administrators, whoever it might be, to commit to the um, uh, to the stakeholders whether that's the public or the creditors or wherever it might be uh, what the what the situation uh, would be and and historically prior to uh, the AIR uh, it didn't have that we saw a, a, a scenario that was falling short of that so what we're now seeing is the regulator and government trying to put in place processes that are more effective at Um, addressing all of those uh, concerns
1: yeah I think that's right I suppose suppose, um, if I had to pick something out then for me as a restructuring lawyer then I'd say the 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 potential special administration regime Mm. will be interesting we've seen various special administration regimes brought in over the last few years to deal with financial services with sort of key infrastructure Um, and you, you can see a lot of the themes um, that have been drawn out in the airline insolvency review have, have have come from those other regimes. So you know, if we look at um, the, uh, the 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 system for reviewing the financial health of airlines pre-insolvency, which which, which is aimed at avoidance, I suppose, rather than um, than, than cure. Um, uh, then you know the, the, they they seem to have have similarities with sort of the, the living will regime in, in in financial services and that would seem to be a you know a a, a positive thing
2: mm-hmm. um, Yeah, and, and of course that is something that is that, that is new to the aviation environment where the the special regulatory regimes around fleet detention rights uh, the transfer of very significant assets uh, in the form of uh, landing and takeoff slots at airports have created uh, legal challenges, uh, both for aviation lawyers like myself, but also for restructuring lawyers. In how do we deal with these both tangible and intangible assets that are uh, a cornerstone of the uh, of the balance sheet of the airline uh, in, in distribution of the assets post uh, post administration? Yes, yeah, so I think that would be particularly interesting looking at a point
1: of looking at this from the point of view of, of those financed, financing um, mm. airline businesses. Well, how is the special administration regime going to work um, in order? Will it will it give them um, super priority if they are prevented from uh, enforcing uh, against their their assets? Um, that's you know, This is unknown at the mm. moment, um, but you could see a case for, for, for arguing that they should get super mm. priority. Um, in return for their forbearance and support, um, that in turn will have an impact on um, the ability to, to uh, enforce liens, as as, as mm-hmm. Tony mentioned. So this, it, it, at the moment, we don't have a bill. Um, it, it will go. I think there's no date currently for the second reading um, of of the bill, um, but it's going to be interesting to see how these tensions are, are dealt with.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we haven't mentioned it yet, but between the, the publication of the, the AIR and the Queen's speech uh, came the situation with Thomas Cook. Um, obviously, uh, we covered it extensively, we um, wrote thousands and thousands of words on it and, it, and it engaged a lot of people in a lot of different countries. Um, what What differences, if any, were there between the Thomas Cook situation and Monarch? Um, And, you know, can can anything be gained by looking at the two next to each other? Practically speaking, I think
2: that um, the the government and the regulators were much better prepared for it, not because they weren't prepared the first time, but all Mm. of the systems had been tested, uh, and they knew the failings uh, or or where there were challenges uh, in Monarch that they were able to avoid in Thomas Cook. And I think one of the key ones was they appreciated that uh, they needed to continue to have some form of access to uh, the aircraft to help in the repatriation exercise. Uh, And I think one of the fundamental differences we saw was that uh, the regulator sought to uh, maintain access to Thomas Cook owned aircraft throughout the repatriation exercise. And they did that by uh, by virtue of the fact that Thomas Cook continued to have an operating licence, so it continued to fly under that operating licence, albeit the CAA was uh, effectively sitting behind those flights. And, and that is something that was fundamentally different and allowed for that uh, mass repatriation in, in probably a more uh, fluid manner than, than it was the case in Monarch.
0: Mm.
2: And it was undoubtedly successful, the
1: repatriation. I think it was done incredibly efficiently. Um, but they, I suppose, they had the advantage in that situation that Mon, uh, that um, Thomas Cook did own some of its own aircraft, which I don't think was the case was in. Uh, it
2: it did, point. and I think you know, one of the amazing statistics is it was the largest repatriation of British people since D-Day or mm. something like that. And and it is quite frankly, it was astonishing to be a part of uh, to to see the assets continue to be used. Regardless of the fact that there were innumerable uh, legal hurdles through the aviation environment and the restructuring environment but actually I think there was to a degree a coming together of the objective that look we need to get the job done first and, and we'll sort the rest out in the wash by no means was it perfect uh, by virtue of putting that flexibility into the system without a, 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 a legal structure meant that Meant and continues to mean because it hasn't been solved that uh, certain creditors remain at risk, uh, perhaps you know, in a way that they should not be.
0: Mm. Would would that have been any different had the AIRs um, recommendations been in effect? I mean, is is there a kind of more of a safety net for creditors in the in the future that we can look forward to? Uh,
2: It depends because I think where it might benefit certain uh, creditors, it will detriment others. So if, for example, there is, as Chris described, a living will, uh, that may be that it is compelling the continued use of aircraft that otherwise uh, airports themselves might be able to, might have been able to detain to secure their landing fees under their fleet lien. So where, the, where some parties may win out, others will not. Uh, and I think the, the, the challenge for the AIR will be threading that needle. Uh, the, you know, the existing fleetly and riot has been created for a reason. Um, is it the case that the, uh, the, the foremost requirement will always be the repatriation of the, the traveling public? Are we there to ensure people's holidays? Uh, or, or, or is it the case that where where creditors might lose out, like airports or others, there there can be catastrophic effects. I think there'll be a it'll be, there'll be a further impact
1: on those sorts of issues because if if say airports no longer have the right to um, to a, a fleet lien mm. or any sort of lien, then they will have to look at
2: other ways of ensuring that they get paid. And certainly that's the case that you, you wouldn't want to create a situation where we are p- potentially putting in new barriers to entry, whether um, artificial or not, uh, to new airline operators. It's a, v- a highly competitive environment already. Um, these are very expensive assets. The, um, the, the aviation uh, regulatory regime already provides for certain levels of bonding and, uh, mm. th- that are quite unique to this sector. So you you can absolutely understand that there will be some um, resistance to further uh, financial barriers being put in, whether that be from uh, from the airports or, or from uh, regulatory constructs. That means uh, you, that there there is more money or more taxes being paid to protect from such eventualities.
0: Mm. Um, so the Queen's speech to Parliament in December. Um, introduced some of the measures from from the AIR, but um, perhaps you could you could speak a bit more about how much of uh, the contents of the report have, have made it onto the legislative agenda for the new government? Um, yeah, Richard, we, we simply
1: don't know at the moment. Um, so we have uh, some four or five bullet points within the Queen's speech that seems to recognise the, 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 the repatriate, repatriation toolkit, um, the uh, special administration regime uh, and enhancements to to uh, atoll. but we don't we don't have any more information than that about what will actually turn up in the bill because as I okay. said earlier, we haven't seen the bill. What we have had is the airline insolvency review briefing paper from the House of Commons Library um, from uh, January 2020. Um, which gives us a little more information, um, it provides a good summary of the airline insolvency review, but it's a case of watch this space, and I think that's particularly important for um, for, for, for lessors, for financiers, um, to track this in detail, because it'll be them that will be expected to be more nimble and to react to um, legislative change Um by considering how they continue financing the aviation industry, which is obviously a
2: key industry uh, within the UK.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, I, and I think that's all right, Chris. And I think the uh, what we what we already have is a system whereby you have a very sophisticated uh, regulator I, in the UK, and indeed uh, a lot of the European regulators. So I think the, the the message out there is that you still have a very um, a very strong uh, sector, you've got a, a, a regulator that is, and government that are very willing to uh, work with industry through distress situations uh, such that um, all stake, stakeholders uh, can move forward with some level of certainty.
0: Chris, Tony, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much.